You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of foreign correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, I talked to Ruan McCormick, our foreign affairs correspondent and the author of a recent book on the Irish Supreme Court, about Donald Trump and his relationship with the very independent US judges, or so-called judges, as President Trump has taken to calling them. And I talked to Dan McLaughlin in Romania, where massive street protests forced the government to scrap its plans to soften anti-corruption laws. Firstly, Trump and the judges. One of the main subtexts of the US presidential election was the contest for the right to appoint a judge to take the place of the late Antonin Scalia. His death last February removed one of the most eloquent and died-in-the-world conservatives from the nine-member court. Democrat attempts to fill the seat with Merrick Garland were filibustered by Republicans. Ruin, this was one of the big prizes for Donald Trump. It was. For many years, the Supreme Court has been very evenly balanced um, on all of the major decisions on big controversial issues such as gun rights, uh, abortion, uh, you know, the rights of corporations to fund political campaigns, all of these um, controversial issues. The court has tended to, to divide 5-4, uh, and generally speaking, um, Anthony Kennedy has been the swing vote in between. Um, the death of Antonin Scalia last year um, left the court with um, a 4-4 breakdown. And what that meant, it, it in fact did decide many cases last year 4-4. What that meant was that the court simply adopted the decision of the lower court. But um, Barack Obama, in the closing months of his presidency, nominated Merrick Garland, a, a moderate centrist jurist, uh, for the position. But uh, the Republicans uh, refused to have it heard before the Senate, refused to allow a vote, uh, arguing that the decision on Scalia's replacement should be taken by the new president, by Obama's replacement. And so uh, Merrick Garland wasn't confirmed, uh, and it was one of the major issues during the campaign. Donald Trump spoke about it quite a lot. Um, you know, there's a there's a there's a big. Uh, industry in Republican circles almost heavily funded campaigns, think tanks take a very active role in advocating for conservatives uh, to get onto the Supreme Court. And they had a big influence over Donald Trump and his campaign and he he argued it, I think, in all of the presidential debates and on the campaign trail that he would make sure to appoint somebody who was pro-life, who um, had conservative views on gun ownership and so on once he was elected. Uh, he's nominated uh, a guy called Neil Gorsuch. Who is Neil Gorsuch? And and he is uh, he's in a likeness, in a way, of of uh, Scalia, um, in that he, among other things, he supports the idea of, of originalism in interpreting the Constitution. What is originalism? Originalism means that you attempt to interpret or to intuit what the drafters of the U.S. Constitution meant, and that you 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 take your decisions you know, in 2016, 2017, based on your understanding of what the drafters meant. So you reject the idea that the Constitution is a living document and that you can apply it in evolving ways to the circumstances of the day. Um, it's very much based on the text. It's also called textualism. So you, it's derived from, from the text. Now, its opponents would... the intentions of the uh, founders. The intentions of the founders are not the intentions of the legislators. You know, so that's the key point. A lot of... Uh, judges would say, well, we're now attempting to interpret this statute against 
the constitution and to do that we will look at the parliamentary debates let's say I mean you have Irish judges and, and uh, British judges who will do this they'll say let's look at the parliamentary debate let's look at the debate surrounding the enactment of this legislation and say what was the intention of the legislators um, textualists or originalists reject this completely and say that has no role in judicial decision making they're also not interested in the outcome of their decision they would argue so you know it could have a, 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 an unforeseen consequence it could have a consequence that they're not particularly pleased about, but that doesn't enter into their consideration. That's what they would argue. Now, of course, the opposite argument is that, uh, conveniently enough, uh, textualism or originalism tends to lead to conservative outcomes. Um, and so this was the case for Antonin Scalia, and it's the case, I suppose, for Neil Gorsuch as well. But it's certainly true that he does subscribe to this this judicial philosophy that was popularised by Scalia over the last 10, 20 years. And, and where does he come from? Uh, he's very much a product of the swamp, Neil Gorsuch, in that he is a graduate of Columbia and Harvard Law School. He went to Oxford as a Marshall Scholar. He's been on the on a federal appeals court in Colorado for a number of years. He's also very young. He's 49. So it means that um, if, and I presume he'll be confirmed, he'll be on the court for at least 20 years and possibly up to 40 years. So it's very much a long-term appointment and he will be in a position uh, to influence the court's thinking and jurisprudence over a very long time. But yeah, he's, he's a product of the Ivy League. Um, he's a very well-respected uh, judge. I suppose it's it's the case too that he is of the mainstream. Um, you know, even though he has very solidly conservative views on many of the key issues. In fact, you know, it's, it's very clear he wouldn't have been nominated if he didn't. Um, some on the left did fear worse. Um, you know, so they did fear that. William Pryor, one of the other candidates who was said to be in discussion, is called abortion an abomination, for example, whereas uh, Gorsuch has never actually decided a case on abortion. It's fairly clear, according to, re to the reviews of his book on euthanasia about a decade ago, what his personal views on abortion are. He's pro-life. Um, and you can be fairly sure that the Trump administration was satisfied as to that before nominating him. But he hasn't taken a decision on it. But do say that in the interviews the subject didn't come up. And, and Gorsuch, interestingly, in the past, has said it, that his personal views are irrelevant to uh, his role as a judge because what he has to do is interpret the law. And, and you take that at face value. Um, it's interesting, however, that the Heritage Foundation, um, that the Federalist Society, um, that you, you know, all of these groups are very much behind Gorsuch. Um, I presume, at least based on the reviews of the, on their reading of his of his book, on his you know they're looking at his decisions on corporal punish on sorry on capital punishment. They're looking at his decisions on uh, religious freedom. They're taking all of this in the round and saying, you know, while he may not explicitly have taken a position on abortion, we can assume, and as much as it's safe to assume anything, um, that he will be sound as they would see it on on abortion. However, it is true that it's very difficult to say with any certainty what a Supreme Court judge is going to do once that judge gets onto the court. So um, David Souter, uh, who was appointed by uh, the first George Bush, um, turned out to be much less of an ardent conservative than um, the Republican Party believed or, or expected him to be. Um, similarly, Anthony Kennedy, who was appointed by Reagan, you know, was not, they didn't envisage that he would be the swing vote on cases on abortion and gun ownership and so on. So, you know, you, you can't say with absolute certainty what somebody's going to do once they get onto that court. Yes, and indeed, uh, reading between the lines of 
uh, Gorsuch's uh, um, rulings on, on, for example, on administrative law, uh, there's quite interesting philosophy underlining it, which is uh, to do with the fact that it's up to the courts to interpret the law and uh, state agencies should keep their hands off uh, legal interpretation. It would suggest that maybe he might not be altogether sympathetic to what is being called executive overreach by the president. Indeed, and, and apparently there are a number of immigration decisions in big immigration cases he took in, in Colorado um, that, where, he, where he ruled against um, attempts by the federal government to retrospectively uh, apply rules and regulations that would be to the disadvantage of immigrants. Now, you know, you don't need me to spell out why that's significant today because he's being nominated at a time when the big controversy of the day is Donald Trump's attempt to uh, to ban immigrants from seven Muslim-majority countries and to ban refugees from coming into the country. So his views on immigration specifically and, as you say, on uh, executive overreach in general will be big issues when it comes to his confirmation hearings uh, and will be what everybody's watching once he actually gets onto the court, presuming he does get through the nomination process. Well, in, in, indeed, and, and that's where it's quite interesting. It's, there's a bit of a dilemma for, for Democrats, whether they go for him uh, bullheaded and they filibuster and prevent his nomination entirely, or as many of them are arguing that perhaps they should wait uh, for the second judicial appointment of the Supreme Court by by Trump, which would be the one which would be really shifting the balance away from the status quo. Yeah, I think Democrats are in a bind here because on the one hand, you've got a, a really vocal group of activists within the Democratic Party and among its supporters who you know are of the impeach him immediately school of thinking towards Donald Trump. So, you know, they say we should resist from day one. We should take a, a, an aggressive, hostile approach to the Trump White House from day one, um, and and so a, you know a certain number of Democratic um, congressmen, senators are of that view. Elizabeth Warren came out very quickly and said we should oppose uh, Neil Gorsuch from the outset. However, there's another group within the Democratic Party, not least those who are facing uh, re-election campaigns within two years in states where Donald Trump won, who fear that if they oppose Gorsuch, that they could be the subject, the target of you know, um, heavy, uh, heavily funded campaigns from conservatives and Republicans uh, in their states uh, on the back of their having opposed uh, a Republican nominee. So I think they're in a difficult situation. I think, you know, my reading of the public comments we've seen in the last couple of days is that uh, you will see a much more intense fight over as you say, over the next nominee, because that will have the potential. I mean, you know, we have several justices on the court who are 80 or over. Anthony Kennedy, I think, is 80. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is, is quite elderly as well. So if one of those two, for example, were to announce retirement, um, that would clearly have the potential to, to, to solidify the conservative majority on the court, and you'd have a much more intense fight over that one, I think. And the Republicans have a bit of a dilemma too because depending on what the Democrats do, they will have to decide whether or not they're going to overrule the filibuster provisions in, in the, the rules of, of the, the Senate. And these require 60 votes to, uh, to overcome uh, objections to a candidate. Um, the problem is at the back of the minds of, of many Republicans must be the, the fact that Donald Trump is going to be there for only four years. 
That's right. Um, it would be very easy for them to deploy this, what they call this nuclear option, and Donald Trump has encouraged them to do so. He said, you know, if, if that's what it takes, well, well, go ahead and do it. But of course, as you say, the the, uh, the senators and, and, and the House leadership have different uh, considerations to Donald Trump, the White House. So um, it's easily done. They could enact this change by a simple majority and rush it through very quickly. Um, but it is a it could have consequences down the road. So they're looking at a situation where they don't have a rock-solid majority. I mean, it's a majority that could easily be overturned within one or two election round, uh, electoral rounds. Uh, and so the um, Mitch McConnell uh, has been non-committal so far. He hasn't committed to doing that. And I think the reason clearly is that they're looking at a situation where they could be on the other side of the fence um, having to... Having to uh, you know, attempt to oppose a Democratic nominee uh, without being able to deploy, uh, uh, w you know, w without the filibuster existing. Now, Trump's uh, travel ban is likely to end up in the, in the Supreme Court, whether or not Gorsuch is there. Uh, and Trump is already at war with the other courts and with the judges. He's referred to uh, one judge as a so-called judge. He's, he's, he's blasted another judge saying that if something happens uh, blame him and the court system. Um, and it's extraordinary, really, that within two weeks of being in power, uh, we have a situation where the president is already uh, taking on the, the legislative, uh, the, 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 the judicial wing of, of the government, and over very important issues like the scope of presidential powers, the state's rights, uh, equality provisions in the, in the court. These are very big issues to be fighting with the, the, the judiciary about. Yeah, it seems to me to be unprecedented that you would have a, a, a you know a president describing um, judges as so-called judges, as he did in the case of a, a, a judge appointed by uh, a George W. Bush and unanimously approved and, um, and, uh, by the by the Senate. Donald Trump isn't running into any opposition within his own camp so far. I think you know, as in many issues, it'll take a bit of time. It's only when Donald Trump becomes significantly less popular that you will start to see opposition within the Republican camp come out publicly. But I, I'm sure a lot of people are very uneasy with what he's doing. And it'll be in interesting to see whether this has any effect on on you know the relationship between the executive and the, ju the judiciary down the line. The decision where today, Tuesday, um, the appeal of the uh, decision taken in Washington state, which um, blocked several key provisions of this, this ban, there's a hearing taking place in San Francisco. I think it's taking place by phone, but the three judges judges hearing it uh, were appointed by uh, George W. Bush, I believe, uh, by Jimmy Carter and by Barack Obama. You know, it'll be interesting to see how that quite uh, you know uh, heterogeneous group, uh, judging by their appoint their appointees at least, decide the case. But I think there's a lot riding on it because it'll set the the terms of. The engagement between Donald Trump and the judicial branch for many years to come. You, you saw in the last few months of his time in power, um, the President Obama relying increasingly on executive orders because he he simply didn't have the votes in Congress. The Republicans were extremely critical of that, and and yet that how that is how uh, Donald Trump has started from day one to rule. It's all he's done so far. I mean, every day there almost there has been an executive. Uh, an executive order or an executive action uh, taken. Um, you know, I think to, to a large extent, you know, Donald Trump is a showman. This is uh, very largely for, for show. It's it's about 
the theatre, you know, where Donald Trump sits down in the Oval Office and signs a document in the presence of a lot of his aides and so on. Um, but it's true that the Republicans were extremely critical of Barack Obama when he resorted to executive actions. Mm. Um, there's not a murmur out of them this time. And, and you know, as I say, I think for now... Uh, Republicans are willing to indulge Donald Trump. They're willing to live with it. He's, he, he, he won election. He's only in there uh, uh, two weeks. I think when, um, as with the, 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 the immigrant ban, as he takes more and more unpopular decisions, as his popularity and his satisfaction ratings start to drop, you'll see, particularly as we come towards those midterm elections, you'll see uh, Republicans, particularly those who are in potentially vulnerable situations in their own states, begin to assert themselves uh, a little bit more. And that'll apply to everything from the executive orders to uh, uh, you know the decisions he takes in general. But specifically, how do you think the originalists who are stuffing the uh, Supreme Court are going to re react to this exercise of presidential power? Oh, well, I don't think they'll like it. Um, you know, I don't think at a philosophical level they, they agree with it. Of course, remember that you know, the Republican, or rather the conservative judicial outlook is marked by a hostility to executive overreach. You know, it's all about states' rights. Um, you know, and in many ways, somebody like Gorsuch, considering the judicial philosophy he has in that respect, is an unlikely pick for Donald Trump. Um, but I think certainly you know, we're not seeing that tension now um, we most certainly are going to see it play out much later on in, in uh, Donald Trump's presidency. Thank you very much, Ron. Uh, we'll take a short break now, after which I'll talk to Dan McLaughlin about historic protests in Romania. Hi, my name's Hugh Linehan, and I just wanted to take a few seconds to tell you about the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. Every week I'm joined by our own expert analysts along with elected politicians and people who just have interesting political ideas. If you're interested in how the system works, how it could be made better, and what effects politics really has on your life, join me every Wednesday for Inside Politics. You can find it on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. Romanians have a tradition of taking to the streets to hold their governments to account. But even by their own traditions, events in the past weeks have dwarfed previous movements. More have been out night after night than at any time since the 1989 revolution, which overthrew the Ceausescus. This time, it's about pressing the fight against corruption and has forced the government to withdraw plans to soften anti-corruption measures. But that's not enough. The demos are continuing and the government is under pressure to resign. Dan McLaughlin, how did this movement arise? Uh, it, it all started a week ago, Paddy, uh, last Tuesday, when at night, basically in secret, the government got together and passed an emergency uh, decree to soften anti-corruption legislation, as you mentioned there in your introduction. There was an immediate response from the public. Thousands of people came out that, that night, uh, last Tuesday night. Um, and from then on, the, the protests just got bigger and bigger. Um, they peaked on Saturday night when something like 250 or 300,000 people were out in Bucharest and there were smaller demonstrations all over the country. It really was a national movement and a national protest. Um, the result was that the government was forced to back down and it did withdraw that decree. But there is lots of anger around. The government only took power last month and people are shocked really that the first major move that this new government took was to soften anti-corruption legislation, introducing moves that would have um, 
decriminalized uh, abuse of power cases if the costs to the state, if the damages caused to the state amounted to less than around 44,000 euro. Um, and the measures would also have freed something like 2,000, 2,500 uh, people who've been convicted of various non-violent crimes, but many of those people were politicians and businessmen uh, who were convicted of graft. Including and it would have shielded people who are uh, facing those charges now from um, from continued investigation. So uh, a national movement against this, which which did which did succeed and did force the government to back down. Uh, among those who would have been pardoned are are indeed leaders of of the the social democrats who who, who are now in government. But if we go back further, the, this campaign against corruption uh, and the the popularity of measures against corruption. Uh, goes back quite a while, but took particular force, I think, in Bucharest after a, a nightclub fire. That's right. I mean, Romania has been fighting corruption um, with varying degrees of success, and, and you could say with varying degrees of, of commitment as well, uh, ever since 1989, the, the, the revolution that you mentioned, which overthrew communism and the communist dictator Nicolae Ceausescu. Um, it's remained a massive problem in Romania to the extent that along with Bulgaria, um, it in the sort of special measures from the EU, a special monitoring uh, scheme is continuing to, to keep an eye on corruption in, in Romania and Bulgaria and see how the, gov how the, the governments of those two countries are dealing with it. Um, the protests that you mentioned were back in uh, autumn 2015 when um, there was a horrific fire at an in Bucharest uh, called Collective. Dozens of people were killed um, and... Basically, for a lot of people, for a lot of Romanians, um, they saw this fire, uh, the fact that safety measures weren't in place, that it seems that uh, safety permissions were given um, in return for bribes. These are the allegations, at least, relating to the case. Um, people saw it as uh, a perfect example of, of how corruption can, in the worst cases, kill. Um, and huge protests uh, came out, especially in Bucharest at that time, and they actually prompted the resignation of a, of a social democrat government at the time, back in autumn 2015. Um, a, a caretaker government took over, governed the country for about a year, leading up to elections um, just two months ago, which, strange as it may sound, the social democrats actually won again, uh, largely due to their very populist promises. They promised things like uh, lowering taxes, raising pensions, raising wages for state workers, and a very kind of lacklustre campaign from the opposition. So the Social Democrats got back into power, but they have always been dogged by a reputation for corruption. Um, and so seeing that their first move, really their first major move once they were back in power, was to try to weaken the anti-corruption fight, has only confirmed this quite shady reputation that they have among lots of Romanians. Now they they campaigned, in fact, in the, in the elections to uh, to, the, to to continue the fight against against corruption. It's a particularly um, strange volt fast. What what was the reasoning behind the repeal of of this legislation? You're right. It was very strange, and and these measures that they took uh, were certainly not mentioned during the election campaign. They weren't part of the Social Democrats' manifesto in any way. The government claims that these things are necessary to, uh, they have two main arguments. They say that they need to reduce overcrowding in the Romanian prison system. And they say that they have to adjust Romanian legislation to bring uh, anti-corruption laws uh, into line with the constitution. 
But neither of these pieces of justification have, have convinced Romanians, particularly, as you said, that uh, uh, members of the, of the Social Democrats and businessmen who are linked to them would have been some of the major beneficiaries of, this, uh, of the reforms that they tried unsuccessfully to push through. And indeed, it might have been more sensible to amend the constitution uh, to make it comply with the law than the than the uh, the other way around. The measures have been watched uh, with alarm, but the government's moves have been watched with alarm in Brussels and in other European capitals. That's right. There was a very quick and very strong response from the European Union in terms of well, uh, there was a very strong statement at least released from um, uh, Jean Claude Juncker's office. Uh, making it very clear that the EU did not agree with these measures and that they represented a reversal of what has been a relatively good trend in Romania. Romania has done much better and shown much stronger results in the fight against corruption in the last few years than Bulgaria has, for example. Uh, lots of ministers, lots of deputies, even a couple of uh, former prime ministers have been indicted by the anti-corruption authorities in Romania in recent years. So the European Union came out strongly against it, individual EU states came out against it, uh, and the United States um, joined a declaration with, I think, five European Union nations, including France and Germany, decrying this uh, emergency decree from the government. We also saw in Romania itself, um, not just protests on the street, but um, condemnation of this government move from uh, the judiciary, from the anti-corruption uh, agency, from um, the the whole uh, from from the prosecution service, and perhaps most uh, strikingly from the president Klaus Johannes. Um, he was elected back in 2015 on an anti-corrupt on uh, 2014, I think rather, on an anti-corruption platform. He was he was really seen as a man with clean hands who could help this anti-corruption fight. He actually went out a couple of nights and joined protesters on the street, and he became something of a of, of well, one of the faces, let's say, of um, of protests against these decrees. And so, uh, a very broad-based domestic and international criticism, which um, eventually did force this U-turn from the government. Um, there have been smaller demonstrations since then. The, the, the demonstrators are not satisfied simply by the repeal of, of this decree. Uh, they're not convinced by the, uh, the good faith of the, the, the government in, in its fight, um, its promise to fight uh, corruption. But do you think that basically they've taken the sting out of the movement? Is it, is it, is it going to calm down now? Uh, it's hard to tell right now. I mean... Um, the government said late on Saturday night in the face of these enormous protests um, on Saturday night that they would rescind this decree. On Sunday, they did that. On Monday, yesterday, when Parliament got back together, um, they sort of went through the, they, they started the legal process to do that. Um, but there's clearly confusion within the government itself as to how to move forward. Yesterday morning, the, the Justice Minister said that he would uh, table a motion, a, a bill, to basically put, push these reforms through using the normal parliamentary process, not using this emergency decree. But uh, on, by Monday afternoon, the Justice Ministry said that there was absolutely no urgency about this and that the government was going to wait and see what the Constitutional Court had to say um, about the legality of these moves. Um, there were smaller protests uh, last night, Monday night, and as you said, lots of people have basically said, OK, we may have won this battle in forcing the government to withdraw this decree, but how can we trust this new cabinet when the first thing it tries to do 
is soften anti-corruption measures to the benefit of its own people. What the government did may not have taken the sting out of the, um, the public anger and the protests, but today, that's Tuesday, uh, President Johannes addressed Parliament, and he, you know, in the middle of a, a, a very harsh rebuke, a very tough rebuke of the, of the government, basically condemning, um, again, what it had tried to do with these anti-corruption measures. Um, he, he also said that it was only two months ago that they won um, a clear majority in the election. Um, so they, they did win very recently the right to govern, but they have to do it in the proper way. He basically told them that the country was in a political crisis, but he at least wanted to give them another chance. Uh, only one minister has resigned so far from the cabinet as a result of this crisis. He said that that was not enough. So he said, essentially, the government has, has some room for manoeuvre between um, going further and, and potentially getting rid of more cabinet ministers with the justice minister expected to resign or be fired in the very near future, um, all the way up to, to uh, new elections, which he said the country is not ready for right now. So he's given the government another chance. Whether the people will um, go along with the president and accept that this government should be given another chance remains to be seen. Thank you very much, Dan. Thanks to Ruan McCormack and Dan McLaughlin, to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. I'm Patrick Smith. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on your preferred podcast app or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. And you can email us directly at worldviewpodcast at irishtimes.com. Thank you very much for listening. Music.